you know you've been out of town a lot when your wife informs you that your dog has slept in your place in your bed more than you have this month. <laughs> yeah, thunder, and I, I don't think that causes my blanket to smell good either. And now my tablet isn't turning on, so I'll just keep on telling jokes until, until something changes. How are you guys doing? Good. It's good to be back. You know, I love traveling, and I love going all around the world, and I really love it when my tablet works. But um, it's really nice to be home, isn't it? It's really good to be gone and then come back home and see all of your friends, see all of your family, and have your tablet work. And, you know, I've, I've been in Mexico, and um, we had a really successful trip. And last week when I was giving kind of our report, there was a couple people that I didn't get to thank, and I really want to thank them. Um, one of those people is um, Lila Earwood. Lila, where are you? She's like, no, don't mention me again. Where's Lila? Lila's right back there. About three months ago, I said, Lila, um, we're going to be doing a VBS, and I have no idea how to do a VBS. And she says, well, I've done that for 10,000 years. And I said, well, can, can you do this for me? Because I really don't know what I'm doing. And she, she took it and trained us how to do it and taught us what to do and showed us the crafts and the games that tied in with that. So can we all please thank her? And then also, like, the second I announced that we're going to Mexico, that God had enabled this awesome opportunity, um, Joe Jameson was like, can I give you stuff? And, and Joe Jameson gave us stuff, and then gave us more stuff. And, and the week before we went, Joe said, can I give you more stuff? And I said, Joe, our trailer's full because you've given us so much stuff. And where, where's Joe? Is Joe here? He's not here. Well, let's clap for Joe anyway, because <laughs> Joe is awesome. And then... Kind of in the same story, um, Jeff Salier said, hey, I am so excited about this. I'm going to get you 100 batting helmets, and, and he really did. He didn't say that, but that's what he ended up getting us. He got us so much stuff, and he got it donated from um, Altamont Little League and a store called America's Pastime. And I just want to thank Jeff for setting all that up and working with Scotty. And, and it was... I don't know who to thank for this, so I might embarrass somebody who doesn't like being embarrassed, but the, the coolest part of the trip when we were down there was I was unloading all of the sports gear, you know, all 100 batting helmets, and I, oh, and I see this box, and I didn't know what was in the box. And I opened the box, and there was over 120 baseball caps that were brand new. Who, who, I don't know. Who donated that? God donated that. I, I don't know. It was the coolest thing, and so I'm out there working, and, and we're all painting and all this stuff, and then all of a sudden, we see all of these 7th and 8th graders walking out in brand new baseball caps, playing baseball, and that was just so cool in a time where, you know, there, there's some differences between America and Mexico. They saw that we are coming down there to serve them and to share some of our culture with them. They were so excited, and so I just want to say thank you to all of the people who don donated, all of the people who were our prayer partners as we, as we went down there. It was just a massive success. So um, for the next month, you guys are stuck with me as um, Jason has invited me to uh, preach for the next month. And I'm, I'm really excited about this because three, yeah, three years ago, when I was still living in Asia, um, I decided for some random reason I wanted to write a book. And I don't know why I wanted to write a book, but I felt like my experiences of moving to Los Angeles to be in a band, moving to Austin to help start a church, 
having that church die, moving to Asia to teach Asian kids, and then along the way, getting engaged to an Indonesian that's also Canadian. I felt like I needed to write all this down. <laughs> Has that ever happened to anybody? You move across the world and, and no, thank you, Patty. Thank you. Um, and after finishing this book, I realized something very important. I wrote this book to share with people, but I realized that I wasn't writing this book just so I could teach someone. I wrote this book so that I could learn about myself, so that I could learn about God as I do the research. And I grew so much. It was an awesome experience. And I'm going to share um, four sermons that are kind of cutting the book into four different pieces. And in a couple weeks, I'll have the book for sale if you want to buy it. But if you don't, I'm going to give you most of it here for free. How's that? What a good deal. Um, this book helped me see, and the reason I'm sharing this is the book helped me see my life and going all around the world in the context of God's story. And my book in this sermon series is called His Plan to Save the World. It's about God's plan and what we can do to be a part of that. But before I share everything about the book, before I tell you what the book's about, I want to tell you exactly what the whole culmination of this book and sermon series are. Because when I worked as an English teacher, I learned that when you're teaching people, one of the best things you can do is spoil the entire lesson before you start. And they said, especially with language learners, if you tell them, here's what the book's about, before they start the book, they're going to understand the context behind it. So I told this in one of my year-end um, sessions with one of my students and his parents. And I, I, his name's Owen. I'll probably talk about Owen again. Owen is awesome. And he's not that smart. But he tries really hard. And I, I love this kid. And Owen really struggled because he grew up speaking Indonesian. And now he was trying to learn English. And if if you've ever had to learn English, it's a terrible language to learn. And so I said, Owen, you're struggling in English class, so I want to help you with this. Every time I assign a book, I want you to go online and read the summary of that book before you read the book. Then you'll understand exactly what's going on. And so he said, every time you give me a book, I will read the summary first. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So Owen decided to try that the following year when we were in grade 9. And I decided that we were going to um, read my favorite book of all time, Of Mice and Men. So I say, guys, here's your book. Take this home. We're going to start reading tomorrow. So Owen, following my directions, goes home, goes to Wikipedia, and reads the entire summary for the book. I love this book for three reasons. Basically, the first one is that it's very short. It's only about 120 pages, and I don't like long books. The second thing is that there is a character that every single person can identify with. It is a very emotional book, and there's always someone that you can say, oh, I'm like this person. And then thirdly, somebody dies in the end. That's why I like it. And it is this massive twist, and it, it is gut-wrenching. It, it is, you are so sad. And that's exactly how Owen felt when he read the summary. He said, I didn't know this character was going to die. So, of course, Owen did what most ninth graders would do. And as soon as he read the summary and saw that this character dies, he tweets about it. He says, I can't believe that blank dies at the end of Of Mice and Men. Yeah, well, of course, his entire class follows him on Twitter, so he spoiled the book for every single person in my class. So the next day, I walk in, the kids line up for class, I say, good morning, and one kid goes, I hate Owen. <laughs> and then walks into class. And the next student I say, hey, good morning, how you doing? Owen is stupid. I'm like, no, he's not. I love Owen. He's one of my favorite students. And the next kid comes in. 
and they say something I can't really repeat from the pulpit, but it was very anti-Owen. And, and I go, Owen, oh, what happened? And he goes, well, I was just following your advice, and I was really sad when the character died. And I said, Owen, you have ruined the book for my class. You've also ruined pretty much all of my lessons until that point in the book. I have a job, and you just made my job harder. And Owen says, I'm, I'm sorry. So I say, Owen, you need to go to the front of the class because I hate it. I hate spoilers. So you need to go into the class. Not everybody follows you on Twitter, and you need to apologize. And Owen says, okay, that's fair. That's fair. So Owen walks into, up into the front of the class, and he's, he's very awkward, Owen, because he's a teenager, and he's kind of scared, and he says, I, I, I'm sorry, class, for spoiling the book. I'm I'm sorry to Mr. Patrick for making your job harder. And then Owen gets very emotional. Looks down on the ground and he says, I just couldn't believe that he dies in the end. <laughs> and so all of the students who hadn't followed Owen on Twitter now knows exactly what's going to happen. I, I, I had no idea what to say. I'm standing there in the back. I'm just like, that's Owen. Owen, thank you. Go back to your seat. But what's true for Owen, and what's true if you're trying to learn a language, is absolutely true with us right now. I'm going to tell you the point of the whole series. So if you are only here this week, and then you disappear, and you don't hear the rest of the sermon series, here's what it's all about. We are God's plan to save the world. I am so concerned with this. This is so close to my heart, because there is a lot of good going on in the world today. There's a lot of good stuff that we're doing. There's a lot of good stuff that people who don't even believe in God are doing. There, there's some, this is really cool. Um, I don't even know who these people are, but they're here today. Where, where are Courtney and Landon? Right there. Yeah, they, they live in Tanzania, and they're helping bring God's blessing to that country. I wrote about you guys. I didn't even know you were going to be here today. I've just heard so many stories about y'all, which is so cool. I have a friend in a similar way. He listened to one sermon sold everything he had, moved to Kenya so that he could adopt some Kenyan kids and use his city planning skills in Kenya because he felt that's what he needed to do. I have a friend in Los Angeles who is an artist, and he uses all of his profits to fund anti-sex trafficking efforts in China. I'm wearing Tom's shoes. Every time I buy a pair of these shoes, which happens a lot more than it should, a poor kid, usually in Argentina, gets a free pair of shoes. There is so much good going on in this world. We got to have a barbecue with a bunch of families last week with kids who can go to school and can have meals because of the people in this room. That is so good. And so I wanted to write this story about God planning to save the world. When we do these good things, we are fulfilling what God said would happen in Genesis 22. I've got it up here. God is making a huge promise to Abraham, and it has to do with exactly what I just talked about, what we do in Mexico, what we do next door, what we do in work. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Not most nations, not some nations, not the Christians will be blessed. Through Abraham's offspring, all nations will be blessed. So when we bless our neighbor, or when we bless a neighboring country, we are fulfilling that prophecy, that promise that God made thousands of years ago. But here's the problem. 
sometimes we can get this backwards. When we try to fix or save or, or help the world or bless the world, we can get so focused on that task that we can forget that God is already doing that. You see, God says, I'm going to bless the nations through you. We are getting to be a part of what God is doing, but we can get so focused on fundraising for this mission trip or, or going to this place or doing this thing that we forget that there is something a lot bigger going on. And, and what that leads us to do is we really start to think this selfish thought that God needs our help. We start thinking that God is sitting up there in heaven thinking, man, if they don't wear a, a cross necklace to work today, my whole plan is done. Or if, if Patrick doesn't say just the perfect words to the barista at the Starbucks that he works from every Friday, if Patrick doesn't share the gospel today, this person's going to hell. We start to think that if we don't do something, God is going to fail. And that is just not true. God is saving the world. It's happening right now. But he's doing it through his people. And we can choose to be a part of what's happening. God is saving the world. God is not, it's not like he, is, he might save the world if I do things right. It's not God will save the world if our church gets its act together. God is saving the world. But it's so easy to forget this. So easy to start looking at all the problems in the church, both our church here and the, the big church globally. It's so easy to start blaming things when the plan doesn't exactly work out the way we want to have it. I'm going to share something, and I hope that I don't offend people because that's not my goal. But I really, I almost didn't share this, but I want to share this. Because if people, if, if any of you guys know me really well, you know that there's something that currently in our culture drives me crazy. And it's on Facebook, because of course Facebook drives all of us crazy. And I can't stand the articles that Christians post complaining about church. I can't stand it. And I know that some of us here do it, and so I almost didn't share this because I don't want anybody to feel like I'm pointing at you. But this is wrong. It's so easy to post something critical about the church or our church or Christians. It's so easy to find a flaw in something and think that we're going to somehow spark a change in the church leadership. It's not going to happen. You know what I'm talking about. Headlines like, why millennials are leaving the church. Five ways to get children to leave church when they're older. Or my favorite... This is real. The real reason why millennials are leaving the church, because the first article wasn't good enough. Honestly, articles like this make us look stupid. It's not fixing anything. It makes all of us look stupid. Not just our church. Not just the big global church. You're making every single person that you're sitting with look like we're wasting our time and we're dumb. And here's the thing. It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't look attractive to people who stop going to church. It's not going to make them say, oh look, there's a Christian, they're complaining, so now I want to follow Jesus. No, no, it doesn't work like that, but sometimes that's our logic. I've never heard of somebody who, who converted to Christianity because somebody complained online. I've never met somebody who comes back to church and I say, oh, why did you come back to church? Oh, because this person posted a negative article. No, I've never heard of a church leadership changing because somebody blogged about something. This is an honest invitation. If you want to talk to somebody about why there are less younger people in the church, talk to me. 
Don't post about it. Don't read blogs. Talk to me. Because I'm younger. I left the church. I was done. And I'm back. The, the students over here will tell you that I'm not young, but I, I still like to think that I'm young. But I left the church. I was angry. I have legitimate reasons to complain. I've been hurt, but I'm not going to complain. I'm done. And I'm not going to insult you, the people, my, my church family, by posting stupid articles online that are created just so you'll click them. That's not going to solve anything, and I don't want to insult you guys. So I'm not going to complain, and the reason I'm not going to complain is because God is saving the world. So if you want to complain about something, if you want to criticize, if you want somebody to blame, I'm here today to tell you who to blame. If you don't like church, I know whose fault it is. If you're unhappy with our brotherhood, if you don't like the movement that we're in, I can tell you who to blame. You can blame Jesus. You can blame that guy because it's all his fault. You see, we're, we are God's plan to save the world. So if you're going to complain about anything, you've got to start with who started the church, and that's Jesus. It's his fault, and I know I'm being dramatic. I said something for shock value, but now I've got you hooked, right? So I want to look at scripture because then it's not just me making up some thing. I've actually got scriptural backing behind this, which is a very good thing to do when you're preaching. So we're going to look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28 is an all-star um, chapter. And um, actually, go back, go back real quickly in the PowerPoint. Go back one. Okay, blame this guy. Okay, Matthew 28 starts with Jesus coming back from the dead, which you know is a, it's a pretty big deal. Then goes to an earthquake. Then goes to uh, the angels finding Jesus' female followers. Then the guards, they make a secret plan to say, here's what really happened, and it's a lie that has continued to this day. Then it skips ahead, days, weeks, I don't know how long, but it skips ahead to Jesus' last conversation with his disciples while he's on earth. This conversation is so good, our church here uses this as a mission statement. But before we go and read, I want to internalize this. I want us to imagine today that the 250 or so of us that we are the only followers of Jesus in the world. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus get killed. We saw him bleeding. We saw him die. We saw him taken down off the cross, and we saw him buried. We saw that happen, and most of us here, the only thought in our head is that our movement is done. We are finished. If they killed the leader, what are they going to do with us? So all of us, for, for weeks, we just go and hide. We lock our doors just like the disciples did, and we say, I don't want to go outside. We are done. Then a couple days later, a rumor starts. He's back. Now, you don't believe it because that's crazy. That's crazy. Jesus wouldn't do that. And then somebody else says, He's back. He's, he's alive. And, and you still don't believe it. But you start noticing more and more each other. We're not scared to walk outside anymore. That the people who saw Jesus died, they're back and they're excited. They're talking about Jesus. And then while you're still wondering what is going on, you see him. Jesus walks up to you personally and you know that Jesus is back. So you hang out with him. He does some teaching, and then you go, you go out to a lake, sit on a hill, and Jesus grills fish for breakfast because Jesus can do whatever he wants. And then he says this, Matthew 28, verse 18. 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Think about this. At this point, Jesus has changed the world, at least changed your city. He's conquered death. You're expecting Jesus to lead a big military thing. And then he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If, if, if I'm a disciple at this point, here's what I do. Yeah, that's right. You've got it all, Jesus. And I look around to make sure I'm not the only one freaking out because this is pretty cool. This is Jesus saying, yeah, I conquered death and now I have all the power. The word authority is awesome too. It's from the Greek word exousia, which means active power. It's not just I am powerful. It's a power that is evident, a power that is visible, a power that everybody can see. This power isn't just that he's got influence over people. The power that Jesus is claiming here, I got to pull a sports metaphor because this works perfectly. It's like the power that a head coach of a football team has over the players. Now, the quarterback's throwing, the running back's running, but whenever you watch a football game, you know that the head coach is in charge. And since I'm a Seahawk fan, I got to pull a Seahawk metaphor because this works perfectly. So just hang with me, all you Broncos fans that are still bitter. I'm still bitter too. I'm, I'm right along with you. Okay. Pete Carroll is an amazing coach. He's one of two coaches that has won a NCAA championship and a Super Bowl. He's brilliant. He has techniques and strategies that when you see a player on the field, you know he learned from Pete Carroll. Same defensive scheme, and he always runs first unless it's to win the Super Bowl. And two of you guys got that. But, but Pete Carroll has a boss. And Pete Carroll's boss is named John Schneider. John Schneider is the general manager of the Seahawks, and he's brilliant. He is a really great scout. He's really great at drafting. He signs and releases more players than anybody in the NFL. And if he wanted to, he could fire Pete Carroll. That's how much power he has over Pete Carroll. But John Schneider also has a boss. And his name is Paul Allen. Paul Allen is the richest sports team owner in the entire world. He started this little company called Microsoft. He also developed Ticketmaster into what it is today. He owns multiple tech industry companies. He owns multiple bioengineering companies. It seems like he owns half of the real estate in Seattle. At this point, he has donated over a billion dollars to charity. And Paul Allen has said by the time he dies, he's going to donate over $15 billion to the charities that he loves. He also owns the Portland Trailblazers, so you know he's not perfect. <laughs> uh, Paul Allen is a powerful man, and he is John Schneider's boss. And John Schneider is a powerful man who is Pete Carroll's boss. But when you're watching a game, when we see a football game, we know all of the players are enabled by the head coach because Paul Allen has given him the authority to run his football team. Think about that. Paul Allen is a multi-multi-billionaire, and he bought a football team only so he could give somebody much less powerful the authority to own it and to run it. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that's exactly what he's saying. This is God's earth, but now all of his power has been given to me. And we're his 250 followers, and when Jesus says this, we are excited. Which is why the next two words are perhaps the biggest curveball, the biggest about face 
in the Bible. After claiming authority, Jesus has two words that change everything that will explain why our church has so many problems. Explains why, as a leader, I'm not going to do everything right. Spoiler, I'm not. I'm going to make mistakes. It's going to explain why people have legitimate stuff to complain about. These two words are going to explain why people are not perfect in leading the church. Jesus claims all of God's exousia, the authority and power of God, and then he says these two words. Therefore, go. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm the guy who said, yeah, Jesus, you've got all this power. I'm not ready for this. If I see Jesus taking, like, claiming all of the power, I'm ready for him to say, all right, guys, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So step back. I've got this. I have all of God's power, so watch me save the world. Watch me kill Caesar. Watch me establish an army bigger than has ever existed in the world. That's what I'm ready for. But that is not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus tells his disciples to go. Continuing on in Matthew 28. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus didn't establish his church, an institution that has existed without ceasing for over 2,000 years by telling his disciples to stand back and watch everything that he would do. Jesus says, hey guys, since I have the power, you guys go. Since I have the creator's power, I'm enabling you to go. Since I have the power of the team's owner, you guys go and win the game. Jesus' plan isn't to do things on his own. We are his plan to save the world. It's his plan, and he has chosen to use us. And the best part about that is that Jesus will be with us to the very end of the age. So when we have these things to complain about because the church messes up, we are holding the church, we're holding each other to a standard that Jesus is not holding us to. If Jesus had expected the church to be perfect, Jesus would have said, stand back, I got this. But instead, the church makes mistakes because Jesus, in his wisdom that I don't understand, has said, I will put imperfect people on the front lines in the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say perfection was attainable. He didn't say, hey, I've got a strategy and here's what you do. Jesus didn't say how it's going to work. He didn't say what's going to be the most effective. All he said was go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them what I've taught you. And every step of the way, wherever you go, however long it takes, I will be with you. When we complain, we forget that Jesus has got this. When we complain, we forget how big God is. We forget in Matthew 16, Jesus said, the gates of hell cannot overcome the church. We forget that in Genesis 22, thousands of years ago, God said, Abraham, your descendants, us, you will bless all nations of the world. When we complain and we expect perfection, we're forgetting that God is bigger than all of this. One of my favorite stories to share, I know that some of you guys know this, is um, from my ex-boss when I lived in Asia. His name is Brian. 
And uh, Brian's a grandfather, and he was sitting in the Australian summer with his son, and he says, son, I'm going to go wash your car. So he walks outside, goes to wash his son's car, and as he's walking outside with his buckets, he um, is followed by his grandson, who's five years old, and the grandson says, granddad, I want to wash the car with you. And how good is a grandson, a five-year-old, at washing a car? Not that good. So Brian goes out, turns the hose on, gets the soap ready, gets the wax ready, and starts soaping down the car. And every time he scrubs a little bit, the grandson turns on the water hose and sprays Brian in the back. And then Brian starts waxing a little bit, and then the grandson grabs the hose and sprays Brian again. You know, he might be scrubbing the wheels, and then he's drinking out of the, fire ho- the water hose. And he's not being very helpful. But then at the end, Brian's got almost everything done. He puts soap all over the car, and he look, turns to his grandson, and he says, now, spray down the car. So he does. He sprays on the car, and you know if there's one thing a five-year-old's probably good at, it's spraying water all over a car. And so he does that. Brian walks over, turns off the water, grabs his buckets, opens the front door, walks back inside. And the first thing that happens, the five-year-old runs inside, soaking wet, jumps in his dad's lap and says, Daddy, I washed your car. Brian's got the buckets there. Brian's wetter than the five-year-old, and he, he looks, he smiles. He walks into the garage, dumps it all out. I love what Brian says. He says, the great thing about God is that he lets us be involved in his work. And he lets us think that we're doing it. When Owen ruined the book, he changed the way that the book was read. Knowing that the main character would die, all of my students read the book in a different way. They were always ready for the main character to die. And there's multiple main characters, so I haven't spoiled anything yet. Every page, they're thinking, is he going to die here? Is he going to die here? How is he going to die? Is he going to get murdered? Is he going to commit suicide? Will he have an accident on the farm and, and kill himself accidentally? How could his friends let him die? And so they came up with theories. Oh, here's how he's going to die. Oh, I think this is what's going to happen. And then they started debating a little bit. With one tweet... Owen altered the way that my students read the book. They didn't read the book in the correct perspective, in the perspective that the author wanted. Instead, when they read the book, they read the book with the same perspective that the author would have had. And what's true for my ninth graders is true for us today. We are living in God's story. And we don't have a just earthly perspective we get to share in the perspective of the one who's already written this story. We know how the story's going to end. God's plan, it works. Lives are restored. The earth is restored, and God gets to live with his people. Now, do we know every detail as to how that works? Absolutely not. My students didn't know how the character died. They just knew that he would die. We don't understand how all of the end of the world is going to work. We have no clue. We can argue, we can theorize, but we know how the story ends. God wins, and we get to be a part of that, and God lets us think that we're doing all the work. If there's one thing I've learned through all of this study about God's redemptive work on earth, it's this. We are his plan, but we don't have to be a part of it. God is already saving the world. We can either join him or we could ignore the work that's going on. 
we can fully believe in Jesus. We can be assured of our salvation and still ignore all the work that God's doing. We can do that. But that's not the life that I want to live, and I know enough of us in here to know that that's not what we want either. We want to be people that are in the parts of Albuquerque where God is moving. We want to be in Montgomery Church when God is doing good things. We want to be in our neighborhood if God's moving there. And so this month, we're going to be sharing and learning and um, diving into Scripture, learning about people who have been a part of God's plan. I'm going to share some stories about how God has used me because I know that there are people in here who want to be a part of God's plan. So this month, let's be ready to pursue God and see what he has in store for us as we join his plan to save the world. Let's all stand up. Right now, we're going to have a time of prayer. And last week, we had an awesome time where we could um, pray with people about reaching out to others, about reaching up to God, or, or about reaching closer to each other. And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about. Because God isn't complicated. If we get closer with him, he's going to put us in his plan. And that's what I'm going to be sharing about next week. So if you want to pray with someone here, if you want to pray by yourself, if you want to come down and pray with one of the shepherds, this is the time where we can pray about anything, lift things up to God as we get closer with him. Let me pray for you, then we'll sing a song. God, thank you that you have invited us into something bigger than us, that you've got a plan, you're doing something in Albuquerque, and you've extended us the opportunity to be involved. God, I pray that you will speak to us right now in this time of prayer, that we can speak to you and you'll hear us. And I thank you for bringing us brothers and sisters in Christ here who are here to support us and carry us along the way. We love you, God, and we pray this in your name.